0: Cancer Advances, a Cleveland Clinic podcast for medical professionals, exploring the latest innovative research and clinical advances in the field of oncology. Thank you for joining us for another episode of Cancer Advances. I'm your host, Dr. Dale Shepard, a medical oncologist here at Cleveland Clinic, overseeing our toxic phase one and sarcoma programs. Today, I'm happy to be joined by Dr. Amit Bhatt, an advanced endoscopist and co-director of the Indoluminal Surgery Center at Cleveland Clinic. In another episode of this podcast, I talked to Dr. Gorgon about management of lesions in the lower GI tract. Dr. Bott is here today to discuss management of lesions in the upper GI tract. So welcome. Hey, good morning, and thank you so much for having us, Dan. Absolutely. So maybe to start, just tell us a little bit about your role at Cleveland Clinic. What do, you, what do you do here? And we'll talk specifically about the endoluminal center, but what do you do here? So I am one
1: of the advanced endoscopists. So we go through our gastroenterology fellowship training and then a year of advanced endoscopy where we learn to perform what are called advanced endoscopic procedures like endoscopic ultrasound, ERCP and endoscopic resection procedures. Most of my time is spent performing those procedures and helping
0: our patients here at the Cleveland Clinic. So endoluminal surgery is not very common Tell us a little bit about how you got involved with endoluminal surgery. I
1: think both me and Emory independently had got interested in these techniques. And this for me happened organically very early in my career. So when I was a fellow here at the Cleveland Clinic, we would see these rare videos coming up from Japan of an intricate procedure they were using to treat early esophageal and gastric cancer. The technique was called endoscopic submucosal dissection, or ESD for short, and the procedure was rarely performed in the West and little was known about. it. So it was not possible to learn the techniques here. So I was fortunate to be awarded grants from our GI societies and spent four months of my fellowship in Japan at the National Cancer Center Hospital in Tokyo, Japan, to learn ESD from the hospital that it was invented at. So the cancer makeup in Japan is very different than the West. Gastric cancer was actually their number one cancer for a large part of the last decade. And they spent significant effort to develop techniques to detect and treat gastric cancer in the early stage. The technique itself is intricate, beautiful, but very technically challenging to perform. But when I was there, what amazed me the most wasn't the technique... What the benefit it gave to patients. I saw many patients there undergo endoscopic resection who would have required major surgery here, allowing them to keep their original organs and their quality of life. So I was sold. Uh, I dedicated quite a lot of my time to learn these techniques and to perform them well. And in 2016, when I was hired at advanced endoscopy staff here at the Cleveland Clinic, we started our program performing the first endoscopic resections of early gastric and esophageal cancer. So that sort of started me on this journey towards this idea of what we call operating in the GI tract, uh, going in with the endoscope, taking tools, knives, and being able to very precisely dissect tumors out completely and in one piece, but leaving the patient's organ in place. And this allows patients to basically have the same quality of life that they did prior to the endoscopic resection.
0: That's probably exceedingly important in the upper GI tract where people, if they lose part of their stomach, they have significant problems with eating, for instance.
1: Absolutely right. I think surgery for the upper GI tract is much larger undertaking than surgery for the colon. Um, and, And this is especially, in particular, important for esophageal cancer that tends to happen in more elderly patients with comorbidities that may not be good candidates for an esophagectomy. And as you know, even performing an esophagectomy itself carries its own risk of mortality, and not everybody gets off the table.
0: So what drove you and Dr. Gorgon to set up a center? Tell us a little bit about that.
1: So I think as with most things, the the original growth of our programs was very organic. It was sort of uh, different physicians or patients telling each other about this. Uh, And then sooner or later, Dr. Gorgon and me realized that we had the same passion for doing these techniques and helping our patients. So it was natural and organic for us to team up to form the Endoluminal Surgery Center, uh, a center that's focused on delivering the highest level of complete care to patients with early gastrointestinal neoplasia. That includes precancerous and early cancerous lesions of the esophagus, stomach, small bowel, and colon. And it's uh, it's great to sort of work together with Emory. Uh, It's something that we both have passion for. He's focused on the lower tract with colon polyps, while I focus mostly on esophageal, gastric cancer, and duodenal polyps. And together, we can combine our resources, our knowledge, to help basically develop the the finest program for our patients.
0: Now, how do patients with an upper GI lesion, how do they typically get to you? Is this something where they may have a, a local GI doc that goes in and sees something and 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 refers them or are these primarily people who um you're making an initial diagnosis what's the typical patient that you see
1: for the most part most of our patients are referred to us we're not making that initial diagnosis it's either by the referring doctor suspecting this might be an earlier cancer and sending it towards us or sometimes we have patients actually look up on the internet and they're looking for the best care for their tumor and they find us themselves
0: is there an ideal sort of scenario, an ideal patient that, that you think would be suited to be referred to you? So are is there a particular size or complexity of a, of a, of a tumor, um, a location, something that's best suited to come see you?
1: I think for the most part, we are happy to evaluate all patients that somebody might suspect early cancer. That way we have the ability to be able to determine if that's really the case or not. We're we're happy to see patients we're not actually going to do therapy on, just to make sure that they get on the right path. I think the things that are most important to us, things that referring physicians can do to help us out, is the minute one of these tumors gets scarred, it becomes much more difficult for us to do our job. So I think if you identify a tumor that you might think is on the earlier side minimize interventions. So sometimes we have lesions that somebody partially resects or puts clips on or injects tattoo underneath. Those things are actually not helpful for us and actually make our job much harder. So if you see something that may be an early cancer, take one single biopsy off it and then send it to us and we'll be happy to take care of the rest.
0: Tell me a little bit about the multidisciplinary nature of the center. Who, who's all involved with that?
1: Yeah, I think that's one very important point to our program is this is not sort of one individual making all the decisions, but in early cancer, it's very important to have multidisciplinary evaluation and treatment. And we work very closely with our cardiothoracic surgeons or general surgeons and oncologists to deliver the best level of care. For instance, I'll give an example of somebody with a suspected early esophageal cancer and what is their pathway. So let's say a patient is uh, referred to us for suspected early esophageal cancer. They would first come in and complete their staging tests, which would include an endoscopic ultrasound, a PET and CT scan. Then they would see us, our thoracic surgeons and our oncologists in clinic. We would discuss that case at a multidisciplinary tumor board and a collaborative decision is made on the patient's best treatment. It's important to know that many, I would say probably three out of 10 patients who have suspected early esophageal cancer probably have a more advanced tumor. And that that framework of a multidisciplinary approach lets us make sure that those patients go on to treatments that are more specific to their advanced cancer. If the decision is made that they go under endoscopic submucosal dissection, we would then proceed with the procedure, and the patient would follow up in our clinics in two to three weeks after resection to discuss the pathology and next steps.
0: So when we think about tumors that are maybe more or less likely to be successfully treated, does that exist? Is an adenocarcinoma different than a a GIST, for instance?
1: Yeah, I think... All tumors have their unique biology and risks. The main difference between the endoscopic resection of a cancer and surgical resection of the cancer is there's absence of lymph node dissection with endoscopic techniques. So basically, endoscopic techniques should only be used on tumors that have a very low or negligible risk of spreading to lymph nodes. So, part of the art of deciding which patient is amenable to endoscopic resection is understanding what is the lymph node risk for that tumor and individualizing it to see which patient should go to surgery or not. So, for instance, if we look at the esophagus, it's mostly depth of invasion that defines the risk of invasion. Squamous cell cancer tends to invade at a much lower depth than adenocarcinoma. So I have a little more leeway to do early T1B or tumors that involve the submucosa in patients who have an adenocarcinoma. But for squamous cell cancer, the risk of metastases goes up too high if it invades into the submucosa. So those are not amenable to curative endoscopic resection.
0: What are the biggest limitations currently?
1: So I think over the last five years, these have gone from extremely technically challenging procedures to making them much easier to perform. And part of the limitation of endoscopic surgery is it's done through one flexible endoscope. There's lack of stability and there's also lack of triangulation, which means there's not a surgeon hand, for instance, lifting the lesion up so you can dissect it. Uh, so recently, and uh, we're happy to be part of this, we've actually Developed that surgeon second hand here at the Cleveland Clinic. It's a retraction device that we put on the back of the tumor that helps lift it up and dissect underneath the plane. The device has been licensed to Medtronics and has come out uh, commercially in the last few months and has really helped us uh, be able to perform these procedures much better.
0: So how common are these procedures? So we are certainly doing them here at the Cleveland Clinic. Is this mostly confined to large academic centers, a very few number of centers? How how widespread is the use of this here in the, the United States now?
1: I think there are many patients who can benefit from endoscopic resection or ESD resection of their tumor. But most of these patients in the U.S. are undergoing surgical resection. So I think one part is we really need to spread the knowledge that these procedures exist, and that patients can benefit from it. And uh, I think from their overall quality of life and outcomes moving forward, oncologically, we can deliver the same oncologic outcomes with surgery that allow them to keep their quality of life. So one is getting those appropriate patients in to get the
0: procedure. Are oncologic outcomes similar for all areas in the upper GI tract for the esophagus, the stomach, the, the small bowel, is that pretty consistent throughout?
1: I think there's some variation for sure and part of it is the technique was developed for gastric cancer so the large majority of data has come out regarding the outcomes of gastric adenocarcinoma. Um, there is good outcome data for squamous cell cancer of the esophagus as well, which is the main type of esophageal cancer in Asia where the majority of procedures procedure performed adenocarcinoma of the esophagus is extremely rare, actually, in Asia and Japan, Uh, but that's the most common form of cancer that we have here in the West. So now we're seeing in the last few years a number of data coming out of the outcomes of esophageal adenocarcinoma. We just published a a recent multi-center study that shows 90% plus uh, curative resection rates with these techniques for esophageal adenocarcinoma.
0: That's great. Since surgery has been the mainstay of this, then, you know, of course, habit drives lots of decisions by patients and physicians. Have you noticed that there's a reluctance by either referring physicians or by patients to take on what's still a relatively new procedure?
1: I think to begin with, it's not actually, it, there is this perception it's a relatively new procedure. It actually isn't. So it was developed over 20 years ago and has become the mainstay of treatment now in Asia and has entered our guidelines as in the West as sort of standard of care for these early cancers. So I think this notion that this is a novel, new, proven treatment isn't true, but that, that, uh, that perception is out there. First, I want to debunk that. Two, I think patients are actually, they seek us out. From the patient standpoint, they're very eager to go under these procedures uh, because they can see the benefits to them. At the end of the day, we have patients with advanced tumors coming for ESD, and we have to tell them they may not be candidates. I think one of the biggest barriers is sort of just referral patterns over time. Traditionally, gastroenterologists or endoscopists were sending these to their surgeons, and sort of that's the paradigm that we have to shift there. So I would say that's the biggest barrier.
0: What about insurance? These are in the guidelines. These are standard procedures. Are there any insurance barriers?
1: Um, I think more so for reimbursement. The barriers for us is endoscopic technique is advancing so quickly, we don't have the billing codes to be able to support many of these techniques. Uh, There's a lot of work at the society levels to do that. Here at the clinic, write a letter to our insurance companies, and we haven't had much resistance to them accepting these techniques. Compared to the counterpart of surgery, uh, they're far cheaper than a patient undergoing surgical resection.
0: I mean, I guess just from a sort of understanding from, a, you know, physicians that may be thinking about sending a patient, what does it look like for the patient? What would their treatment look like? How long would that take? What's their recovery look like? Uh, would they be here for a prolonged period of time for that recovery, or would they kind of be home quickly?
1: I can sort of walk you through the the entire process of a patient. We've put a lot of effort sort of into that experience. So, if a physician refers a patient for any uh, with early suspected cancer, we try to complete the entire evaluation to treatment within thirty days. So we'd bring them in and try to get their staging tests done as quick as possible. Uh, We schedule their clinic visits mostly in one day with our surgeons, with me, and with oncology if necessary. Uh, That next week, we will discuss them at tumor board and make a decision moving forward. And during that time, we've already reserved the spot for their ESD procedure if that's what goes through. And then the patient would come in, have nothing to eat or drink after midnight. An anesthesiologist would do general anesthesia, put them to sleep. And the procedure can take anywhere between 45 minutes to two hours. It's a a micro dissection and a very intricate procedure. They would then afterwards go into recovery. And before, at the beginning, we were hospitalizing patients afterwards. But I would say the vast majority, 90 plus, go home right after the procedure. We want that area to give in some time to heal and not be irritated. So they have three days of liquid diet, three days of soft diet, and then they resume a normal diet. We have a clinic visit in two to three weeks um, to discuss the pathology, how they're doing, and next steps. And that visit is very important because I sort of told you about the risk of lymph node and that's based on the depth of invasion, the presence of lymphovascular invasion of its poorly differentiated A lot of those features aren't actually known before we resect a tumor. We might guesstimate or estimate them, but once we take an entire tumor, give it to a pathologist, they can tell us how many high-risk features there are. At that point, we make a decision if it's a low-risk tumor, the patients can go on to have endoscopic surveillance, but if it's a high-risk tumor, they might have to go under additional therapy, for instance, like radiation or sometimes surgery if they're fit candidate. Now, one of the limitations of the endoscopic resection of cancer is we leave the at-risk organ in place. So that's the benefit. You get to keep your organ and avoid the changes in lifestyle or morbidity associated with losing your organ, but that organ is still at risk of developing further cancer. One important point is after they're done with their procedure, they have to have surveillance moving forward. Now, <clears throat> up to where the patient comes from, that can either be done locally by their physician, or if that's not available, we're more than happy to take on that role of doing their surveillance and making sure they're, they're clean. And if something was to develop that we catch at an early stage, that is easily treated. Very
0: good. Where do you see the endoluminal surgery center going the next couple of three years? So we, we really want to expand.
1: I think we've really, this has been a kind of a grassroot movement of, of treating these patients, and we've been fortunate to have exceptional outcomes over the last seven years. Uh, and now we really want to make sure that more patients regionally here in Ohio and elsewhere are able to get that same level of care. And really be able to expand their presence and allowing patients to come in. Our focus is not on one particular technique itself, it is to deliver the best patient care that we can. So we're not focused on just ESD, but also embracing the next generation of technology that's coming out to help these patients. And then third is quality, right? Uh, I think what is really important to us is delivering high quality of care to our patients. So we, we like to track that. So we are developing a dashboard that allows us to know what the outcomes of our patients are. How many got curative of resection? How many had maybe adverse events like bleeding? And it also allows us to track them to make sure that they're getting their surveillance moving forward.
0: Very good. Well, you've provided some great insight today. And to learn more about Cleveland Clinic's endoluminal surgery center, or to refer a patient, please call 216- 444-9246. That's 216-444-9246. You can also visit the website at clevelandclinic.org slash ELS. That's clevelandclinic.org slash ELS. Thank you very much for being with us today. Thank you very much, Dale. This concludes this episode of Cancer Advances. You will find additional podcast episodes on our website, clevelandclinic.org canceradvancespodcast. Subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, SoundCloud, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And don't forget, you can access real-time updates from Cleveland Clinic's Cancer Center experts on our ConsultQD website at consultqd.clevelandclinic.org cancer. Thank you for listening. Please join us again soon.